This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is now available wherever books are sold. Professor will be joining us on the second half of today's show for a special discussion on Fed policy, inflation, the economy. We have Philadelphia Federal Reserve President and former Dean at the Wharton School, Patrick Harker, live from a conference here out in La Jolla. Uh, We're all here attending a Global Interdependence Center conference, uh, the title of which is Digital Money, Decentralized Finance and the Puzzle of Crypto. We have two central bankers here presenting at the conference. I have two of our distinguished guests here to be speaking at the conference. We'll talk to them about their views of what's happening at the Fed in crypto. Uh, but before we get to them, just please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervised wisdom tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. So let me introduce our guest. We have Jim Bianco, who is president founder of Bianco Research, uh, deep in crypto, but also at the Fed uh, policy. We have come to have a better person to talk about these two topics. Will Peck, head of digital assets for Wisdom Tree. Gentlemen, welcome here to La Jolla, behind the markets broadcasting. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to be here, Jer. Jim, let's start with the Fed and tease out this Harker interview. Um, we are hearing a lot about inflation, the economy. What's your sense of what's happening at the Fed? What are they going to do? Uh, you'll hear Siegel's take. He thinks overly hawkish. What's your take on what's going on? Well, I think the de- debate is that inflation is peaked and inflation is coming down. And that's not the difficult thing to say at this point. The better or more difficult question is, is it going back to a long-run rate of 2%? Long-run rate meaning you don't need a recession to depress it down to 2%. It just naturally goes there, which is where it was before COVID. That's an open question. It seems like uh, at the Fed, uh, Chairman Powell and some others are not so sure. I'm not saying that they don't think it will. They're unsure, and they're very resident, resident to ease or stop tightening too early. So we're going to watch the data. We expect inflation to continue to moderate. So it'll go from six and a half to six, somewhere into the fives. But will it by mid-year or later this year get to two by itself and stay there? My personal opinion is it won't. It will come in at some level a little bit higher than two, um, not a lot higher, maybe three, maybe three and a half maybe two and three quarters, and that that the Fed will probably find to be unacceptable. They've made it very clear 2% is what they're shooting for. And and a trailing 12-month 2% because the trailing six months is basically at their goal. If you looked at other indicators, you could say prices are going down um, depending on how you measure housing, which, you know, their housing number in reality you know, and, and this is what something that we are happy Powell talked about. He recognized housing is becoming less of an issue, even though his official data is still going to be hot, maybe all year. Yes. 
I, I think the way that Paul breaks it down, he breaks it down in the three broad categories. There's goods inflation, which is down a lot. Stuff, if you want to use the technical term. <coughs> Excuse me. And that may or may not be bottoming right now. We've seen some signs used car prices might be, you know, starting back up. Not a lot, but at least stop going back down. Uh, but that's only 25% of it. The other roughly 25 or 30% of it is housing, as you pointed out. Um, and um, he's kind of pushed that aside. And he's focused on 55% of core inflation, which is what they call services less housing. Uh, this is a metric. You haven't heard of it. It's because the Fed invented it a few weeks ago, a few months ago. So it's completely invented by them. And what it seems to correlate to is wage inflation. So if wage inflation is running at around 4%, which is what it, is, what it has been doing, 4.5%, then their argument is half of core inflation won't really go much below wage inflation. Well, how do we get wage inflation down? We need slack in the labor market. We need more unemployment. Um, we need more workers to come in, you know, unretire or more workers to come into the market. And to date, we're not seeing any of this. I might add, you can ask Dr. Siegel about this. I thought the Fed got off the Phillips curve. The Phillips curve is a relationship between um, employment and inflation, but they seem to have reattached themselves to the Phillips curve all over again. This is one that that upsets him a lot, actually. And, and he talks about... All right, let's say we have a drought. We're, we're, we're growing oranges. We have a drought. And all of a sudden, we don't have as much oranges. What, what's going to happen to orange juice? It's going to go up. And Powell is saying we have a structural shift down in labor supply. We have less workers. What should happen? We should have wage inflation. And we have some, I mean, elevated at 4%, not out of control. But does that put a floor on inflation as to how much it could fall? It gets back to the Fed has said, 2%, no exceptions, no rules. We're going to two. And if we don't get to two, it's unacceptable. It's, it's very strange. The other thing, I'm curious, um, Chicago school, you're in Chicago. Uh, Siegel, born in Chicago, went to study under Milton Friedman in Chicago, very much a monetarist. And under Milton Friedman, inflation is always a monetary phenomenon. Powell says there's no relationship between the money supply and inflation. What's, what's he saying there with an explosion in the money supply, shouldn't that lead to inflation that we saw? And now what's happening to the money supply? It's gone negative and the most negative since 1938. There is actually data on it going all the way back to the founding of the Fed in 1914. Um, yes. If you ask the question, is there a relationship between money supply and inflation? I'll fall into the monetarist camp and say, yeah, there is. If you ask the question, there's this metric of money called M2, which is what we're talking about, you know, uh, reserves plus some deposits at banks and a couple of other things. That doesn't have a very strong relationship to inflation because money is a concept. It can include things. People think of their net worth and think of their money as how much money do I have in the bank? How much am I going to make? How much is my house worth? Unrealized gains in my stock portfolios. And today, thanks to the internet, they look at the trade-in value of their car and they think that that is a form of money as well. And when you add it all together, people think of their net worth or their money as more than just what do they show in their bank account. And that's what makes the concept of measuring money very difficult. Well, I think Friedman would have would have said when there's an explosion in the money supply, as we saw, inflation was going to come out. 
going to take 12 to 18 months. That's sort of what happened. Now, the printing negative, interesting. So your point, if they did a broader definition, maybe it's not printing as negative as official M2. If you look at world money supply, add in all of the countries together, we've done this uh, exercise. It, it went negative two for the first time ever, but it bottomed about two months ago. And it's not gone up a lot, but at least it stopped going down and it's showing potential signs of turning around. You could argue M2 is sort of working in this extreme, right? It went up to the highest level in 40 years, and we had the highest inflation in 40 years, about a year or so after. It went down a lot, and inflation is coming down. But does that mean that inflation is going to go all the way to zero or go to 1% and hold there? What if the money supply rebounds? We we really don't know at this point. I, like I said, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a concept that makes sense, but it's difficult to measure. Let's just wrap up the central bank part of our discussion before we turn to the crypto and digital money side. Uh, maybe I'll say two questions. If you had to ask Harker one question for the second half of our show, what's the one thing on your mind you want Harker to articulate? And second, where do you think they'll end the year on the policy rate? I, I think the one thing I'd want to ask him is about the long run rate of inflation. Why do they think that in a post-COVID environment, a post-COVID economy, with all the changes we've seen, that we can still achieve 2%? Because the economy, I would argue, is a little different, not worse not better, but different than it was in 2019. Where are they going to end the year? I'm going to take the Fed at their word. They're going to go to five to five and a quarter, and they intend on holding there all year. Um, I think that the idea that there is going to be, there's a debate on Wall Street, whether it's going to be a hard landing or soft landing. And now there's a new term, no landing, that the plane just keeps flying along without slowing down that that looks more and more like a possibility. If that's the case, great, no one loses their job, but the Fed turns and says, we don't have to cut rates either. We've been talking here with Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, about his views on the Fed policy. Uh, we're all at a conference, the Global Interdependence Center, GIC, is hosting an event here in La Jolla, Digital Money to Centralize Finance and the Puzzle of Crypto. Let's bring in Will Peck, head of digital assets, Wisdom Tree. Will, uh, crypto is kind of puzzling at the moment. What is going on? It was a wild day, uh, that's for sure. Uh, it certainly, you know, there was some speculation on crypto Twitter or other places that there was a federal government crackdown kind of in process or coming on various crypto companies here in the U.S. This seems to be in response, potentially, if it's happening, to the FTX blow up that we saw. And interestingly enough, being here in La Jolla, the home of Silvergate Bank, a uh, federally chartered bank that was banking a lot of you know, FTX and FTX's customers that went through a massive deposit run recently, survived it, came out okay on the other side, but clearly that got some of the federal regulators their ears up at least on um, crypto and what how much the banking sector is maybe, certain banks in the banking sector are exposed to crypto companies and crypto prices generally. So uh, just kind of a wild day to see that. We, you know, the, it's interesting. Also, you have two central bankers here presenting at this conference. We're going to hear from them on digital money, decentralized finance. Uh, Jim, what do you expect to hear from them at this conference? Well, the Fed's basic uh, message has been that they're studying the issue. They're concerned about it, but they're really not going to do much on it unless they get direction from Congress. You tell us what we should be doing when it comes to this. On the other side, it seems like they're letting some of the other regulators, the Office of Control of Currency, the SEC, the FDIC, 
take even the CFTC take the lead on regulating crypto, and the Fed remains very silent as they move along deciding what they want to do. So I suspect that they'll talk about the risks uh, that it poses. They'll talk about the potential reward. But I don't think we're going to hear anything yet from the Fed as far as uh, what they think they should do. If anything, they seem to be more focused on a central bank digital currency. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. I mean, the Fed, we talk about the Fed as kind of one monolithic entity or the U.S. government even as one monolithic entity, but lots of different agencies within that. And even within the Fed, right, they've got their kind of bank supervisory role uh, where they're concerned with the biggest banks in the United States in which, you know, and certainly some of them, you see BNY Mellon or other people getting much more engaged in crypto or digital assets. So I think they are supervising that and trying to manage it in uh the way that they think best. And I think the other thing that the Fed is looking at, um, which is the point that Jim just brought up, is this idea of a central bank digital currency. You know, a lot of people are focused with the growth of stable coins and, you know, certainly with what China's done with its digital yuan is this idea of having a essentially a digital dollar, uh, federal, you know, central bank money that can be truly digitized and recorded on a blockchain. And, um, you know, there's lots of questions and implications of that on lots of different levels. Um, so I think one of the interesting parts of this discussion tomorrow will be, you know, is that really necessary? Um, and I, I think there's certainly people who think, oh, this could be a great thing. And there's a lot of other people who are saying, well, why does the federal government even need to be involved here? Right. right. There's lots of examples of commercial bank money and monetary innovations, e-money itself broadly. Right. When people are on Venmo and PayPal, that's just a new form. It's a e-money. Uh, and it's just not on a public database. It's on a private database and, you know, their own servers. Um, and so those are kind of the important points here that I think um, will be a good discussion on tomorrow. I, I was just thinking if I'm a user using my Venmo, exactly what I was just thinking of, of follow up to you was like, why should we care about the central bank currency? If you have what is digital money, if you're already using it electronically, why should we care about putting things on the blockchain? Well, I, I, I mean, I think. You can say with a central bank digital, it's a good question, right? And I think there's a simple question of like, these are just databases. One's kind of a private database that's on Venmo, PayPal, whoever's servers. The other is on a public database that's maintained by lots of different people, whether it's on miners or validators, whatever you want to call it. Um, so there's kind of that question of just these are different databases kind of also storing records of a issuer saying this instrument is worth a dollar. And the creditworthiness of that issuer is kind of, I think, maybe the more relevant point in that. And that gets to what a central bank digital currency might say as well. Is the issuer here the federal government? Is it actually the Fed? And is that true money? And then, but that's a very radical idea of how the, the banking system works today, right? Which is a intermediated banking system where you have a deposit with Bank of America, who then has its, you know, ability to go to the overnight window or hold money at the Federal Reserve, right? And the idea of a central bank digital currency totally disrupts that in a potentially very radical way. Jim, one of the, I'm going to ask two questions here. You know, one of the skeptics of central bank digital currencies are the privacists that will say China's interested in this so they can monitor all their people and see, you know, if you're spending your money wisely, are you, there's a there's a knowledge of what's going on um, in terms of tracking. That that's sort of a concern for some people. Um, but you think about the Fed's concern overseeing the banks. We got the Federal Reserve presence. We got Go Governor Waller here. You know, 
I, if I'm them and thinking about what if they have direct relationships with individuals instead of going through the banking system, you think about what we talked about with Fed rates at five percent. How much are your checking accounts costing you? You got to disclose fees and asset management all the place. How much are banks charging their customers? Yes, five percent. Yes. No, banks are not charging their customers 5%. They're charging them like a third of a percent right now. They're not really giving They're them much. They're not paying them, but the but, cost to the customer, because they could be earning 5%. Yes, yes. Cost to customer is very big. But on your first point about um, China, that has been a big concern. I mean, what is the use case for a central bank digital currency? One is maybe it can be cheaper and faster than the current system we have. And that would be advantageous to all. The other thing about a, a digital money is it's programmable. You can set various limitations or various things that you can and cannot do with that money. Um, on the positive side, China wants to stimulate their economy and they, they give people money and they say, but you have 10 days to spend it or it's not worth anything. So we want to get that money into the system as well as fast as we can. On the negative side, we could start putting rules on you and I'll use a politically correct one. Um, you know, if your cholesterol is too high, maybe you can't charge for that steak dinner at a restaurant, or if you're a little overweight, you can't buy that sugary drink. Do we really want the government to get that far into our life and have the ability to tell us what we can and cannot do with our money? And that makes people very, uh, concerned about whether or not a central bank digital currency is a good idea. I, I do have high cholesterol and I do like to eat steak. Uh, I do need to work. Well, you can pay for cash. So you still got your that up as long as they keep, let you keep using cash, right? No, I think that's um, a great point about it. I actually think the U.S. federal government has been pretty, I, I think they've taken a good approach to this. Like I, I don't hear, you know, the Fed governors coming out and saying, we need to do this tomorrow, at least for the most part. And I think there's been a good discussion about it here in the U.S. And I think there's, you know, a lot of good reasons to be reticent about this idea. Uh, that's on the, you know, should you do it side. There's also the can you do it side, which is this is we're talking about an idea of like a central bank digital currency would be a massive undertaking that would require, you know, major technology to de be deployed. And it's a good question if this is even feasible to deliver, right? If federal governments can actually do that around the world. And, uh, you know, I, I think some countries like China certainly Others are going to try to do stuff like this, and we'll see how that, you know, development goes and see if it's even really feasible for these countries to deliver that. Jim, you've been focused on macro research, um, the bond market yields for your entire career. You've been fascinated by crypto here speaking at the conference because you speak a lot about it. What got you first interested in this? What, what, how do you see it? Uh, what is your interest in, in this, this segment? Decentralized finance and what decentral and I got interested in it around 2017 when I first became aware of the topic and have been, you know, dabbling and understanding and talking to a lot of the players now for for several years. Decentralized finance, to put it in a very simple term, money is issued by the by governments. It's issued by the state and it's held in financial institutions and regulated by financial institutions. Let me say the same thing bluntly. Everybody listening to this podcast, we all have a net worth of zero. All of our money is held by a financial institution. The financial institution keeps a ledger and says, we will let Jeremy use this much, we'll let Jim use this much, and then we have crisscrossing regulators to make sure that those ledgers are honored. Decentralized finance, money is private property. It's mine, and no one can impede on it, no one can take it. Decentralized finance is, to put it simply, 
is to set up a system of trading, which would be like a version of the New York Stock Exchange, borrowing or lending, which would be a version of a bank. Um, and you can do this anonymously. You could do this with your private money. You could do this without being permissioned to do it and without having any kind of censorship. That has been very appealing to me. And I think that that has been something that I think is coming. Last thought I would give you, I like to always, whenever I talk about DeFi, I always start off with a chart and it shows the 11 sectors of the S&P over the last 15 years since the financial crisis. In last place is the financial sector. It's underperformed all the other ones. On Within the financial sector, there's industries. One of the worst industries is large money center banks. This, and if you actually look at the large money center bank stock prices in Europe and Japan, they're much worse than the U.S. This isn't a signal that decentralized finance will take over, but it is a market signal. Something's not right. We need to change the financial system. Now, maybe it is the banks and the Federal Reserve and the FDIC that get together and make that change, or maybe it's some outside disruption like DeFi. Well, and as we just talked about, their cost of capital should be going up even more given what's going on with interest and how you, how much more you can be earning today. So I understand some of that. Will, uh, let me bring you back to the conversation. Where do you see, um, you're working on a lot of things at Wisdom Tree as head of digital assets. What What is your vision on where things are going, what you're trying to build towards uh, and what you're, you're bringing to the industry? Yeah, I mean, so my... Uh giving a brief presentation tomorrow with essentially the overall thesis being, you know, we saw this crypto DeFi stuff, which is new assets, new software protocols for different, you know, parts of financial services. I think one of the, if not the biggest story, I think from that has been stable coins and kind of tokenized dollars as a new e-money instrument, like we spoke about. It's actually amazing if you look at charts of the, whether it's the growth of total settlement annually, just total assets outstanding on these, uh, in these assets, they just continue to grow. So even though the price of Bitcoin, right, has been down, you know, massively from its high last year, um, stablecoin growth just keeps growing and growing. And you're starting to see different examples all around the world of people using this technology uh, for their day-to-day financial services lives, right? And I think the question is, what is next? Like, what's going to be the next thing within that? And, you know, is it CBDCs? Is, is it central bank digital currencies? Is maybe a sub-question of that. Uh, but for us, we think it can be privately issued assets across, you know, all asset classes, whether it's, you know, currency like stable coins, whether it's physically backed gold, so you could have like a, a digital representation of a physical metal like gold, or could it be anything that's a security, which could be stocks, bonds, um, treasury bonds. So kind of bringing this full circle is the idea that a U.S. treasury bond that could be held in an instrument like this actually bringing it closer to payments where you could have something that's yielding, you know, north of four or 5% today that can be at a more core part of your day-to-day financial life. That's a really interesting question that I think this technology, which is kind of this convergence of savings and payments and investing kind of allows you to tackle in a deeper way. So that's uh, kind of the overall trend that we're seeing that we're building uh, products around. A lot of players in the industry right now, looking at the bear market that we've had in crypto have said, what will be the fuel for the next bull market, or as they call it, summer and winter being a bear market. And they think it's going to be real-world assets. It's no longer, the last one was DeFi in 2020. They called it DeFi Summer. And they said, look, you can have this coin, and you can trade it, and you can lend against it, and you can borrow it. 
And regular people said, and do what with it? Well, you could borrow more of it. You could trade more of it and do what with it? Well, now their argument is we got to get real world assets onto the blockchain. You could trade some proxy for stocks, some proxy for bonds, for gold, for maybe indices. There are some that are now trying to do that track the CPI, real estate. And then this would be a new way to trade existing assets. So they're looking at the next summer in crypto as being a real world asset boom. Now, there's still some building that needs to be done. It's not quite there yet. And the industry, the whole crypto industry seems to be moving in that direction. And we'll see how long it takes before it really takes off. Yeah, I think that- off. That's the exact point. I think about DeFi just as software for finance, right? It's just the idea that you can do financial services actions in a code-based automated way. And maybe the best example of that is actually kind of within crypto itself, where you had somebody like FTX or all of these kind of lending platforms that were making these just horrendously poorly risk-managed loans to other venues. None of that was DeFi, actually. That was all just kind of backroom deals that were done where people were making these uncollateralized loans. What DeFi, you know, good DeFi protocols actually worked where there was collateral that was posted for a loan that was actually reclaimed when prices changed and all of that worked much better than kind of these these totally backroom, you know, off-chain types of deals. So I think that's a great example of what DeFi can be. But the problem is right now there's a limited universe of people who want to do that with another, you know, dog coin or something like that. And um, really we should be seeing, and this is what stable coins are, you know, US dollar tokens are, is bringing more real world assets into these software protocols to actually allow them to do things for people that actually make their lives better. Jim, and, and you've been serving institutions um, for your whole career. Did you see them, any traction with, with uh, some of the thoughts you've been having on this space? Are they still just waiting, watching? How do you see institutions engaging with you on it? Well, first they ignored it, then they mocked it, and now they're asking a lot of questions. I've had endless meetings with institutions. Tell me more. Let me understand. Uh, let me try and get my head around this. Um, are they going to the next step of now do we need to invest in it? Um, some are, but most are still in the process of trying to understand what it is that they're doing. Part of the problem is that um, it's hard to divorce DeFi and the and the rebuilding of the financial services with the price of these tokens. Uh, I read a book by Ed Chancellor called The Price of Time, and it was the history of debt, banking, and money going back to the beginning of civilization 10,000 years ago. Jumped out at me about the book was, he said that we we as a civilization, we invented banking first, and then we invented debt, and then we and we used to trade on a barter system. That's to this day we still use agricultural terms like yield to talk about banking. Then we invented money to make it more efficient. Crypto did the opposite. We invented money. We didn't invent a way to trade it or to lend it or to borrow it. So then we said, okay, now we got this Bitcoin thing and this Ethereum thing. We then invented something to do with it. We invented a casino, and so we wildly speculated on it. So the institutions are saying, I get what you're saying about DeFi. This is a very interesting thing. But when I look over at these coins, it looks just like an out-of-control casino. So trying to put the two together has been very difficult for them. But they're they're asking the questions now. I think that's exactly it. I, crypto just got too exciting, right? In a certain sense that prices went up too much too quickly when you're actually talking about something that can be very boring. People just usually don't care about how financial services works, right? 
I think it's time for digital assets, this infrastructure to get a little bit more boring again, not have people kind of YOLOing it into, you know, random dog tokens or things like that. Um, because I think there's something very exciting here in terms of actually how people experience financial services, the prices they pay for financial services that should hopefully be, um, even if they don't even know it's DeFi or crypto or whatever it is, actually making their day-to-day financial lives better. Jim, Will, uh, this will be an interesting conference we're speaking at here, the Global Dirt Dependent Center, GIC, puts on a lot of great events. Jim and I have met at some of those events and glad to be here broadcasting live from La Jolla. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.